Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, do the following questions resonate with you at all? Is God going to take care of me and my family? I confess to know that God is a God who works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But it doesn't seem as if God is working all things for my good. In fact, rather than building up my faith, the trials of life seem to be crushing me. How can I know that this promise is true? I confess to belong body and soul, life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But all too often, my sin feels a lot more real than my union with Christ. How can I know that I really do belong to Jesus Christ in a more fundamental sense than I belong to my sin? Do these questions resonate with you? What is God's response to the person who prays, I believe, but help my unbelief? What is God's response to the person who prays, I believe, but help my unbelief? Well, God's response is to condescend to our weakness and assure us of his covenantal relationship with us. God's response is to condescend to our weakness. Remember, we're sheep. He condescends to our weakness and assures us of his covenantal relationship with us. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. They're guilty. They're naked. They're ashamed. What does God do? He comes to them with gracious promises, with physical signs assuring them that he is still committed to them. Or to put it another way, He condescends to them in order to make and establish a gracious covenant with them. Now here in Genesis 15, we come across the Abrahamic covenant. 
The Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and in Genesis 17. This covenant is essentially a renewal and an expansion upon those promises and that covenant that God established in Genesis 3. We oftentimes refer to this covenant as a covenant of grace because it's God's mechanism whereby he establishes a gracious relationship with his people. This covenant also is substantially connected to the new covenant. What then we learn about this Abrahamic covenant carries over into our lives under the new covenant. As I said earlier, we are are going to take two weeks to consider this Abrahamic covenant in chapter 15. However, as we take these two weeks to consider this chapter, I'd like you to contemplate this question. What is God desiring to do for you in this chapter? What is God desiring to do for you in this chapter? God is desiring to assure you of his covenantal relationship with you in order to strengthen your weak faith. God is desiring to assure you of his covenantal relationship with you in order to strengthen your weak faith. That is what God is up to in this chapter. This morning, then, we're going to focus our attention upon two main points First, we're going to consider how the covenant of grace, or this Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace is for those who believe. It's for those who believe. In Genesis 17, we'll also see that it's for those who believe and their children, but we will hold off until Genesis 17 to consider that point. So first, the covenant of grace is for those who believe. Second, the covenant of grace is for those who believe but still doubt. The covenant of grace is for those who believe, but still doubt. So first, the covenant of grace is for those who believe. Now, after the events of Genesis 14, God comes to Abram in a vision. What does God say to Abram in this vision? We tell us, Abram... I am your shield. I am your great reward. God's coming to Abram after Abram had just defeated these, these great and mighty kings of the east. After Abram had rescued Lot from captivity. And God tells Abram, reminds Abram that he is his shield and great reward. Abram says, well, God, what, what can you give me of any value? I remain childless, and Eliezer of Damascus, someone who is not even my own kin, is set to be my heir. Abram knows that in order for these great promises that God had recently told him, that his family would be as numerous as the stars, that his family would bless all of the families of the earth, that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, Abram knows that in order for these promises to be realized, he needs a son. Without a son, his family's not going to become a great nation. Without a son, his family is not going to bless every family of the earth. Without a son, 
he is not going to have future descendants to inherit this holy land. Well, what's God's response? He says, no, 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 Abram. Eliezer is not going to be your heir. One of your very own biological sons will be your heir. Furthermore, God says, Abram, look up. Look up into the dark night sky and behold the stars. I imagine that Abram would have witnessed a spectacular display of the night sky in, at this moment. And boys and girls, if you've ever been camping or been in a remote area at night on a clear night and you look up into the sky, you also probably have witnessed this spectacular display of seemingly thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars. Imagine this is what Abram experienced here in Genesis 15. God says, so shall your offspring be. Abram, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars that you are looking at in the sky. Again, Abram at this very moment is childless and his wife is far beyond childbearing years. Yet God is promising that his offspring, his family, will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Well, what does Abram do? Well, look with me at verse 6. We read a very important verse in verse 6. We read that Abram believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. What does this mean? We might, we might have a, a safe assumption about what it what it meant for Abram to believe God, but what did it mean that his faith was counted to him as righteousness? What does this mean? Well, thankfully, Romans chapter 4 is essentially a sermon or an exposition on Genesis 15, verse 6, and its surrounding context. Romans chapter 4 is a sermon or exposition on Genesis 15, verse 6, and its surrounding context. Last week, you may remember that we saw that Hebrews 7 was a sermon on Genesis 14. In a very similar way, Romans 4 is a sermon or exposition on Genesis 15, verse 6. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, as he is explaining for us. As an apostle, the meaning of this verse in chapter 15. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul quotes Genesis 15 verse 6. As Paul quotes Genesis 15 verse 6, he's telling us that this verse in Genesis is all about the doctrine of justification. What is justification? 
justification is the means through which we gain a right and restored relationship with God. Justification is the means through which we gain a right and restored relationship with God. That is what justification is. Paul here is contrasting two paths that we can pursue in order to attain the goal of justification. Path number one, the works of the law. Paul is saying that if you perfectly keep the law of God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you will be justified. Then you will have a right and restored relationship with God. Then you will be saved. Now, if you were to do this, your justification, your salvation would not be a gift. It would be something that God owed you. You earned it. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Your paycheck at the end of the week is not a gift from your employer. You earned that paycheck. Now, we know that we're all sinners, and therefore path number one is impossible for us, which means that path number two is the only viable option. What is path number two? Well, path number two is the way of faith. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Christ is our mediator. And as our mediator, he has kept the law of God perfectly for us. So that when you believe in Jesus, Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness. Christ's good works become your good works. Christ's holiness becomes your holiness through faith in Christ. When you believe upon Jesus, God no longer sees you as a sinner, someone who has grievously broken every commandment of God and is continually prone to all evil. That's not what God sees. Rather, what does God see? He sees someone who has never sinned and has always obeyed. Through faith, God promises to only look at you through the spectacles of Christ, through the prism of Christ. This is what Genesis 15 verse 6 means. Now, we may wonder, why, does, why is verse 6 stated in the way that it's stated then? Why does Moses say that Abram's faith was counted as righteousness? Was his faith itself his righteousness? Was his faith that one good work that he could, he could perform sufficiently enough in order to gain God's good favor? No, that's not what... That's not what uh, Moses means. What Moses and Paul mean is that when God looks at Abram's faith or your faith, he sees Christ. When God looks at your faith, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You then receive the verdict of innocence. That's what this language counted is referring to. It's language that comes from the courtroom. It's the language a judge uses when he, he announces either a, 
a, a verdict of guilt or innocence. When God looks at your faith, he pronounces a verdict of innocence that Jesus earned on your behalf. This reminds us that we are not saved, beloved, by our faith. Now, that might sound wrong to you, but it's true. We are not saved by our faith. We are saved by Christ. Christ is our salvation. Christ is our righteousness. Faith is the means, the instrument, the hand that grabs hold of Christ and all his benefits. Your faith in itself does not save you. Christ saves you. Christ is your righteousness and mediator before a holy God. And this means that it's not the quality of your faith. It's not because you score on the scale of faith an 8 out of a 10 as opposed to a 4 out of a 10 that you are saved. And anything below 60% is a failing grade. No, no, no. That's not how faith functions in the Christian life. On judgment day, God will not be examining the precise quality of your faith. No, all he's going to be looking for is whether or not Christ is representing you. And even if you are attached to Christ by faith that's as thin and as tenuous as a hair, it won't matter because Christ is your salvation. This, this is the good news of justification that's revealed to us, not just in Romans 4, but in Genesis 15. Let me ask you, beloved, are you trusting, however ironic it sounds, are you trusting in your faith? Are you trusting in the experiences or emotions or zeal and fervor that you may or may not have in the Christian life? Or are you trusting in Christ? Do you find yourself oftentimes looking within and examining where you fall on that scale of faith? Uh, I think I'm really a C minus. I don't know if God's pleased with me. Or do you find yourself habitually looking at Christ, turning away from yourself and looking at Christ as he's offered to you in the word and the sacraments? All too often, we take our eyes off of Christ as he's given to us in the word and the sacraments, and we turn inward. We become introspective. And what happens when we become introspective? All too often, our faith wavers. We begin to doubt, and we lack assurance. This is precisely what happened to Abram in Genesis 15. This leads us then to my second point. The covenant of grace is not only for those who believe, but it's also for those who believe and still doubt. So yes, Abram believed God. Yes, he received the righteousness of Christ ahead of time. Yes, he was a child of God adopted into this holy family. However, Abram still had doubts. Abram still lacked assurance. Again, let us consider verses 2 and 3. Abram is essentially saying, Yes, God, I know that you are my shield. I know that you are my great reward. I know all of these great promises that you have given to me. But last time I checked, I'm childless. Last time I checked, Eliezer is set to be my heir. What's going on in the life of Abram right now? Well, he's struggling with this tension that I alluded to a few weeks ago, this tension between the eyes and the ears, between the promises of God and 
the circumstances of life. What Abram sees with his eyes in his circumstances, namely he's childless and his wife is far beyond childbearing years, those circumstances don't seem to uh, agree with what he has heard with his ears from the mouth of God. That his family will be a great nation, that his family will bless the entire earth, that his future descendants will inherit the land of Canaan. What he sees does not appear to agree with what he has heard. This is where Abram is at in Genesis 15. This is what doubt is. If you want a precise definition of doubt, this is what it is. Struggling with the tension between the eyes and the ears, between what we hear from God's word about his promises and what we see with our eyes and our circumstances. This is doubt. This is why we oftentimes lack assurance because the Christian life is is lived in the midst of this tension. Now, growing up in Minnesota... Uh, this time of year, we would oftentimes get a lot of snow. And when there would be a, a big snowfall, the snow plows would come out and clear the streets and the parking lots. One of my favorite games I would play with my friends was King of the Hill. So after the snow plows did their job, you'd have these huge snow piles that are 10, 15 feet high. So my friends and I, we would play King of the Hill. Now, if you've never played King of the Hill, the point of the game is that someone uh, is at, on the top of the snow pile He is the king. Everybody else is trying to climb the hill and push that person off. Whoever pushes that person off is the new king, and you start the game all over again. The point of the game is to see who can be the king the longest. Very easily, it can become an aggressive and somewhat violent activity, but it was a lot of fun as a a boy. Now imagine that your eyes and your ears are playing a game of king of the hill, vying for the top of your snow pile in your Christian life. Who's winning? Who's on the top? The promises of God or your circumstances? Now, what does it look like for the circumstances, our circumstances, to be on the top, to be the king? This looks like us allowing our circumstances to be the interpretive lens through which we view all of life. This looks like us allowing our circumstances to be the interpretive lens through which we view all of life. For instance, let's say a trial a difficulty, a suffering enters your life. What this would look like then is you allowing that trial to be the lens through which you construct a doctrine of God. Because this has happened to me, God must be aloof. Because this has happened to me, God must have no plan or purpose for my life. We are allowing the circumstances to be the interpretive lens through which we view God, his word, and even the meaning of our own life. What does it look like then to allow the promises of God to be on the top of the hill? Well, this looks like allowing the promises of God to be the interpretive lens through which we view all of life. For instance, let's say a trial or a difficulty or a suffering comes. This would look like saying, yes, I I recognize, I know that this is hard. But I also know that God promises to be my providential heavenly father. God has promised to work all things for the good of those who love him. God has proven himself through the cross and the resurrection to be a God who is at his best when things seem to be at his worst. And so even though I 
will never know the precise meaning and purpose behind the events of my life, I know that I can trust God. That's what it looks like to allow the promises of God to be the king of the hill. Think with me for, uh, about the circumstances of your own life, the difficult things that you are being called to walk through, the things that keep you up at night, the things that bring tears to your eyes, the things that, that bring physical distress upon your body when you, when you think about them. What is the relationship between those circumstances and the promises of God? What is the relationship between those circumstances and the promises of God? Who is on the top of your snow pile? Martin Luther very wonderfully instructs us that the ear is to be the main organ that gives life to the Christian. The ear is to be on top. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. When verses 7 through 8, we see that Abram's doubting doesn't end in verses 2 and 3. In verses 7 through 8, Abram continues to experience doubt. We read, And God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram said, O Lord God, how can I know, or how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram's doubt here is taking on a slightly new spin, a slightly new twist. Notice that here, Abram is wanting more certainty. He's wanting certainty beyond the hearing of his ears. He wants God to engage his other senses. He wants to know for sure that these promises will be true. Well, God graciously provides for Abram in this way through this strange ceremony that we'll turn our attention to next week. However, oftentimes we find ourselves in the precise place that Abram finds himself in in verse 8. We desire, we desire for, for more assurance than, than, than what we can merely hear with our ears or, or read with our eyes on a printed page. We want God to engage our other senses. Well, God provides for us through the sacraments in the same way God provides for Abram through this strange ceremony that we will think about next week. In the Lord's Supper, God is essentially telling you, I know that your experiences, I know that your sufferings are real. I know that you are experiencing them as a body and soul individual. But you also need to know that my promises, which may seem abstract, spiritual and otherworldly, you also need to know that my promises are as real for you as this bread and wine that you can touch, taste, and handle. God is saying, taste and see that I am good. 